good to see y'all. Eli and I have been doing this thing over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we're feeling a bit nostalgic. And so uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's two years of being in a pandemic and we've run out of things to talk about. So uh, now we just uh, ask one another if we remember certain things from the 1990s. I was a 90s kid. Um, and, uh, and I usually, right, we've been talking a lot about this. Um, and I, I must admit that, you know, the conversation often goes like this, like Eli's doing some task like washing the dishes, or uh, Eli likes to vacuum a lot, so she's always vacuuming, and it's not like I don't do my part, I do my part. Um, but I'll say something <laughs> kind of derogatory and patronizing. I'll be like, hey, Eli, like in Iowa, did y'all have starter jackets? Like assuming that it was like Iowa's so far away and they don't keep up with modern trends. And she, she always stops and, and looks at me and is like, you're an idiot, right? Like, and then, <laughs> She'll say something to the, to the effect, like, of course, like, we had starter jackets in Iowa. And then, like, under her breath, she'll say something like, uh, also, why don't you look at the education rankings of the states? You know, something like that, just to get back at me, because I am a product of the public school system in Texas. But for whatever reason, right, we've been living kind of in the 1990s. Uh, we even watched an episode of Step by Step, uh, which I think is a sign that we've been like in lockdown for like 90 years. And we really watched it just so we could hear the theme song. Um, but then we got sucked in and we just watched the whole episode. It doesn't hold up, just uh, for your information if you haven't seen Step by Step in a while. Definitely doesn't hold up. But one thing from the 90s that should still exist and, and I think really holds up is uh, like magic eye pictures. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know, you're like staring at this odd like computer pixelated image and you're just staring at it and you can't make sense of it. You just keep staring at it and then you let your eyes cross you're staring at it, and then you're like, it's a dolphin, right? Like, uh, oh, I see it, right? And I, uh, I actually, when I was young, we stumbled into, well, I stumbled into a Magic Eye kind of art studio, very small, uh, not a lot hanging on the walls, but it was like right next door to, we were on a trip, some church trip is like next door to TGI of Fridays or like, Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, wherever you're like obligated to go when you're on a church trip. So it was like right next door and I went in there and I just remember the feeling of being so overwhelmed by all the pictures that I couldn't actually see, right? And I began to just stare at them over and over again and then, you know, you just stare at it and then you'd shout out what you're seeing and the images really weren't that great, but it was a whole process of like having this experience of seeing something and then suddenly, Right? You see something else. You may be permanently cross-eyed as you leave, but you do have an experience of seeing one thing and then something else unfolds rather dramatically, if you're into dolphins, and, uh, or rather immediately. And I bring this up not only because I've been thinking about the 90s a lot, but I also bring it up because I can't stop thinking of this image, this tool to kind of Help me understand what is going on in the transfiguration. And so as we prepare to read the gospel this morning, think about dolphins. No, uh, I'm joking. Uh, pay attention, though, to the movement 
of the text and really hone in on the moment in which Peter recognizes what's going on. I invite you to rise and body your spirit for the reading of Luke 9, verses 28 through 38. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with them Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became dazzling white, and suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us and for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the truth is, you know, to be human, I think, is to at least stumble upon these types of experiences ever so often. Not, not walking up a mountain and then seeing Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, but having some sort of experience where we suddenly are able to see. It's an immediate kind of move from you're here and then you move to here. You know, you're asking the question, what is this? What is going on? How in the world can I make sense of this? And then all of a sudden, you get it. Maybe it's trying to solve for the wordle of the day. Maybe it's trying to put together Ikea furniture. Maybe, you know, it's something a bit more serious. Maybe it's a deep spiritual prayer that for a long time has felt really hollow and empty, and then all of a sudden, you feel God's grace. Peace, love, maybe it's sitting at the bedside of someone um, you're tasked with caring for as they transition from this life to the next, and there's grief, and there's sorrow, and there's pain, and just then immediately, maybe just for a moment, there's a sense of peace, and joy, and gratitude, it is the same for these disciples. They are hanging out on the side of the mountain with Jesus. Not all of them, just the chosen few. Jesus' closest friends, right? Follow him up the side of the mountain. And apparently, Jesus goes off and prays like he often does. 
And he asked them for some reason to just stay awake the whole night, which sounds like the worst like thing ever, right? Like, I'm gonna go pray. Y'all just sit here on this cold, dark mountain and you just stay awake. Don't go to sleep. And somehow they managed to stay awake. And when they kind of make sense of what's happening, or they begin to sense something is indeed happening, they are immediately brought into this divine space where they not only experience God, but then are brought into, the text says, brought into the cloud to to then emerge down the mountain as changed or transformed people. Because up until this point, and it's a big deal because up until this point, they had kind of been stuck seeing Jesus in one way, as only human. Sure, he performed miracles, but he wasn't the only one, right? He was selfless, he was loving, he was prophetic. He was a really amazing man, but just a man. Peter had started to kind of put the pieces together. He had gazed in that kind of magic eye art and was beginning to put some things together because earlier in the chapter, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And and the disciples respond, "Uh, well, with several different things. And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. Catching a glimpse of who Christ is. Then Jesus goes on to explain what that means. And in the Gospel of Matthew, (laughs) Peter says, no way, I'm not in on this whole crucifixion thing. And then Jesus calls Peter Satan and tells him to get behind him, right? So clearly Peter struggles kind of to put the pieces together. I am struck though with how on this mountainside, it's not just a question, it's not just a pondering that Peter and the other disciples have, they are forced, they are forced to reckon with the divine. These three disciples have hiked alongside Jesus up a mountain and found themselves in the very presence, the text tells us, the very presence of God. They can't but see God. And so overwhelmed by God, right? So overcome by God's power and presence on that mountainside, they begin to see Jesus next to the two pillars of the faith, Moses, the great leader, the liberationist, the one who presented the Torah to the community, who both came down from the mountain glowing and also presented the community with a new way of identifying and forming their own kind of uh, rules and regulations, essentially birthing the Israelites into existence, and Elijah, the Israel's great prophet, the one who called them back into right relationship with God and other. And they are fixated on these figures. And there is no doubt that the disciples are thinking about the text that we just read for our first reading this morning. There is no way that they're on the side of the mountain, they have an experience with God, and they can't help but recall the last time they heard about Moses on the side of a mountain coming down and his face glowing, right? Glowing because he's had such a close encounter with the divine. 
They are expecting to be completely changed. That story with Moses, though, is one that we kind of have to dig into a little bit more because Moses goes up into the mountain and is engulfed in fog, a divine cloud. But the folks down in camp, the folks far away, can only see fire and the mountain is lit up. God showing us that he, God can both be the mist, the haze, the divine fog, and fire simultaneously. Just like Moses uh, has an experience with a burning bush. The, bush. the bush is on fire, and yet it is not consumed. It is this meeting of divine and profane spaces that I want us to draw our attention to. Profane just simply being fleshy, incarnational spaces. It is a liminal space that we read about in Luke 9. An in-between place. The Celtic people, uh, they have a name for this. They call it the, th- the thin space. The thin space. The sacred drawing near to the profane. The divine becoming intimate with creation. It's a thin membrane, a thin barrier, kind of like an overhyped ice storm where the ice separating your feet is really, really thin, paper thin. And because the sacred moves so close to our world, it can be, as we see, disorienting and confusing. It's often associated in scripture uh, with acts of theophany, where an overwhelming revelation of God through indescribable events happens or takes place. It's this marriage between transcendence and imminence all at once, right? And we read about it from time to time. And the folks who encounter it, they're overwhelmed, they're disoriented, they are confused because they see the world in a new way. I know that some of us have had these types of experiences. These moments in our life, fleeting, not many, but opportunities where we begin to meet the divine so closely that we are overwhelmed. And I can't imagine what the disciples are feeling. We only get really Peter's response, but there were others on the mountain too, all with their own interpretations and own understandings of the events. And it brings to mind this quote from C.S. Lewis in one of the books of Narnia, right? He says, what you see depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what type of person you are. What you see depends on not only where you are standing, but what kind of person you are. This couldn't be more true for the disciples. And Peter, out of fear, utters some sort of gibberish about making a tabernacle, a dwelling for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, like somehow you can build a container or a box around God, right? 
And the one thing I've hoped that you've taken away from this chapter in our Unfold series, right? This, this movement that we're doing as a community to allow God's story to become our story, this year-long series, the one thing that I've hoped you, you will come away with as we end chapter one today is how futile and impossible it is for us to contain God. This isn't the only time, though, Peter fails to get it. When Jesus approaches the boat by walking on water, Peter jumps out and walks on water too, and then begins to sink. When soldiers approach Jesus to arrest him, Peter draws his sword and strikes a guard, cutting off his ear. When Peter is asked, do you know Jesus during Jesus' last hours while he is suffering at the hands of empire, it is Peter who denies Christ. Why? Because the proximity we have with God in these thin places creates real, tangible fear. Fear. Peter quite can't make sense of it all. No matter how close God draws near to him, Peter is afraid. And to be truthful, this is the Peter we need. We don't need Peter as a role model. We need Peter as a stand-in for each and every one of us. Peter coming close but failing to understand because of his fear, this is us. This is us where we allow our fear to take center stage. The good news is God doesn't allow us to kind of waddle about, flail around in our fear, doesn't allow us to become so disoriented in our fear that it dominates our lives. There is indeed a divine response. Jesus extends a hand to Peter and pulls him up into the boat. Jesus heals the soldier's ear, a divine commitment to nonviolence. Jesus restores Peter and affirms that he's going to be the rock in which Christ builds his church. And, and in today's text, God intervenes. The text says that a cloud came and overwhelmed them which ended any conversation about boxing up God and reserving or preserving the experience. And the text says they were terrified and then they hear God's voice. This is my son, my chosen, my beloved, my answer, my path, my work, my hope for you. You would do well to listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. God, in that moment, gives his disciples two really important things. Assurance and something to do. Assurance and action steps to overcome their fear. Because God provides a way. God always provides a path. We read in Isaiah, don't you see it? I am making a way in the wilderness. Why? It's this simple. 
Why does God go out of God's way to create paths for us? Why does God allow us to kind of have a moment of fear and then drop in and pull us back in the boat? Why does God continue to show up in the lives of the faithful and unfaithful alike? It is all because of this. God loves us. That's it. God loves us. God is relational and God is forgiving the two themes for the past two weeks because God is love. Why does God want to be in relationship with you? Because God loves you. Why is God forgiving? Because God loves you. This is the last attribute I want us to carry with us as we move into chapter two on on Ash Wednesday. God is relational, God is forgiving because God is love. We, like Peter, have much to fear. Last week, our governor put out a hideous statement accusing trans kids and their parents that they are undergoing abuse, urging their parents to be punished. It's a vile dog whistle in this unhinged primary season. And there are real fears with parents right now. I know because I've talked to them. I also know because I am one. Kids are scared, parents are scared, teachers are scared, doctors are scared. The fear is real. And if that wasn't enough, we're also witnessing a world that is being forced through a crucible of change. And not good change. While Russian tanks and soldiers haven't yet forced their way into Kyiv, it's clear that Putin has forced an entire change to the post-World War II order. The images out of Ukraine are horrific, haunting, and we can see the fear and a lot of resolve on the faces of Ukrainians. There is much to fear, and the fear is justifiable. It's overwhelming. Yesterday at Costco, don't go to Costco and Rockwall at 1 p.m. on a Saturday. But Eli and I did that. That was our date for the day. We left the boys with my parents and uh, went to Costco. Eli and I passed the canned Spam and Vienna sausages, and we joked about needing to buy some because, well, who knows, right? If you need to go start making a go bag or bug out bag, you know, some way to begin prepping for the end of the world. And it was a ridiculous statement in which we kind of laughed off until I realized that I was still thinking about it. We aren't preppers. I'm not interested in building a bomb shelter in my backyard which is obvious, I don't think I come off as a prepper. <laughs> I mean, we couldn't figure out that uh, when our kids run out of graham crackers, there's, uh, you would think that that would only happen once in our house, but it's happened multiple times, right? But I will admit that my mind lingered for far too long on this idea that maybe I needed to start preparing myself for something horrific. That's not me. I don't do that. What would we do if we needed to leave Dallas quickly? 
The fear, I think, that I experienced as I <laughs> caught myself lingering on this thought for too long uh, was a recognition and a realization that we all kind of carry this unsettled fear with us these days. It is real. It is real, but my task, my job, the one you've entrusted me to do as your pastor is to, to tell you that it's both real and that there is some good news. I don't know what to make of our world right now, but I, I, do, I do know this, that fear is not everlasting. It is not divine, and it is not the promises that we read about in scripture. It is not of God, and it is not the Jesus that I know. I also believe that God's love for us saves us. God's love for us saves us. Notice when Peter is sinking, when Peter is lashing out, when Peter is denying, when Peter is suggesting that they build tiny homes for God, right? God doesn't solve it by giving Peter more reason. God doesn't solve it by inviting Peter to have more faith. God simply loves. And Peter is restored. What a word for us then this week, love. Love wins. And I know it to be true because God is love and this is the story of the gospel. I'll forever trust in that or at least strive to trust in that. And I'll look for God's hand when I start to sink or the clouds engulf me. And if I can't see it, that being God's hand, if I can't feel God and I can't make sense of it all, if my fear is dominating me, I have you. And you have me. And together, I trust that we can find a way to do what God invites the disciples to do. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Place your faith in the gospel. And I trust that we are doing that together right here and right now. And that's why I am so grateful to be your pastor. Will you pray with me? God, it has been a challenging week for us And it'd be one thing if it was a challenging week in the midst of a lot of really good weeks, but it has been a challenging season that has lasted for far too long. So help us find your outstretched hand pulling us up out of the water and into the boat. Help us to find places where healing and nonviolence can break into the world. Help us to trust that you are so abundant that you cannot be contained, not even in well-written liturgies or appropriate sermons or beautiful hymns. Help us trust that you are moving far beyond the walls of this church to bring about your reign, one that is brought about through peace, through love, 
and is always opposed to hate, fear, and violence. For you are a God who loves, loves us, and for that we are grateful. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.